Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. How does a believer experience true joy in Christ? Well, during the program, we continue Dr. Neufeld's current series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, with a message called, A Description of Enduring Joy. Let's turn now in our passage to Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 to 4. The great English poet Lord Byron was known to be a deeply unhappy man. His sexual affairs, his constant desire for something new in his life, his fragile self-esteem all combined to create a man who was deeply dissatisfied both with himself and with life in general. In early 1824, which was also the year of his death, he began that year with a poem which he called, On This Day I Complete My 36th Year. It contained the following line, My days are in the yellow leaf, the flowers and fruits of love are gone, the worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. See, what a tragic ending to a life begun in promise and ended in sorrow. See, I don't know how one rates happiness. I think joy or inner happiness is very important, but while I agree with C.S. Lewis that conversion is an encounter with joy, and while I also agree with John Piper that to know God is to find Him to be the source of our satisfaction and happiness, see, I also believe that joy or happiness is not a virtue by itself. Yes, I think John Piper was right by calling for Christian hedonism, for God really is glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so we really do prove the greatness of our God when we reflect a deep, joyous encounter with that God. Lewis said that joy was the serious business of heaven, and he was right. And yet I still say that joy or happiness is not a virtue in and of itself. You see, I meet people who do not know God, who speak of their inner happiness, even as I meet people who speak of their inner sadness and regret and grief. And what seems to have impressed me is that I have spent time with deeply contented people who seem to take no notice of their sins. Indeed, one might argue that there are those who discount every sin and also seem to reflect an inner sense of peace. Now, I I know, I know what some of you are going to say to me. You're not really aware of what's happening inside of them. This is simply a defense mechanism that they use to hide their inner misery. And to that I respond that I can't see the inside of anybody and neither can you, but I do meet people who seem to be content as rebels of God. And they say, I have no regrets. And if I had to do it all over again, I, would, I wouldn't change a thing. And in contrast, as a Christian man, I simply can't say that. I do have regrets. Yes, I am profoundly aware that Christ has borne away all my sin, that he has bled and died for me so that nothing will ever count against me again. But my conversion has produced in me a fruit, and I can't help it now, for I now find sin to be absolutely unacceptable. And when I resist God, unlike before I knew Christ, now when I sin, it produces in me a kind of a a wretchedness. Paul said that in Romans chapter 7. Now, why am I saying all these things? Because the themes of joy and misery are found at the very beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached, and we're going to face that matter today. We've embarked upon a series in which we are studying Christ's great sermon, often called the Sermon on the Mount. And we notice at the very outset that he uses the word blessed nine times in the first nine sentences of his sermon. 
And then he follows up the nine blessed statements with the words, rejoice and be glad, be overwhelmed with happiness. So at the outset, let's try to trace the relationship between the word blessed and the common word we use in everyday language that is the word happy. See, most of us are aware that the nine blessed statements have traditionally been called the Beatitudes. Now, nothing wrong with that title, but I'll wager that most people can't actually define what a beatitude is. So the word itself comes from a Latin word which means blesses. And so the the beatitudes are nine statements beginning with the word blessed. Now, several years ago, I remember one preacher calling them the be happy attitudes. And I've, I've seen some translations simply put the word happy as a substitute for blessed. Is that right? Well, I don't think so. And before we define blessed, let's remember from yesterday that these nine statements don't tell us how to get into the kingdom of heaven. Rather, they provide us with a description of the person who is in the kingdom. People who belong to Christ's kingdom, all without exception, are blessed. They weren't first blessed and then they entered. Rather, now that they are in, they are blessed. And so please don't read the Sermon on the Mount as some kind of a command to get blessed or to get happy or to develop be happy attitudes. That isn't it at all. So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, for starters, we know that Jesus wasn't the first one to use that word. Consider, for example, Psalm 32. It's a Psalm of David. The Psalm begins this way. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, blessed could be described as happy, as in how happy are those whose sins are forgiven, but I don't think that quite gets us to the idea yet. Instead, the word blessed describes the man or the woman who is favored by God and therefore, in consequence of having been favored by God, has found a happiness or even a deep sense of inner delight. See, the term blessed simply means this is the kind of person whom God approves. See, every once in a while, someone will say, well, why does the Bible tell us to bless God? And what does that mean? And the answer, when we bless God, we're telling God in worship that we approve of him, that we have found him to be the object of our joy, that our soul longs for him. And so when God blesses us, he says, I've approved of you. Now, that means not that we are altogether worthy of praise. It rather means that God has found a way in which that which is not praiseworthy no longer counts against us. Our sins are forgiven. God not only approves of us, but we, and this is very important, we are in the most favored position imaginable. Let me illustrate that. Imagine you encounter a person at a gas station who's buying a lottery ticket, and you engage that person in a conversation. You say, why would you want to win the lottery? And when he gets over the shock of the question, he sees that you're serious. And this person says, so I could get everything I ever wanted. And you then ask, what is it that you want? And that person might say, well, I want to quit my job and be free to do what I want. But you say, I still don't understand. What do you want? So that person responds, well, I I want to travel. I want to start a new business. I want to buy a house overlooking the ocean. I want to get the car of my dreams. I never want to spend a winter in the cold again. And now you ask, why do you want those things? And that person would answer, if I had them, I think I'd be happy and I think I'd be satisfied. These are the kinds of things that bring joy to the human heart. If I had them, I'd be in the most favored position imaginable. See, at that point, you might probe whether or not, you know, they're right. 
this, whether or not this is the favored position. But on this you would agree. Everyone wants the ideal, for in the ideal we find human satisfaction and the soul is at rest and flooded with contentment. This is happiness or this is what it means to be blessed. Everyone wants the ideal, the favored position, the, the place to be where our hearts are flooded with joy. And the word blessed has all of those connotations. And so what Jesus is saying in this, the greatest sermon ever preached, is that those who are in his kingdom have exactly this kind of blessedness. They are in the most favored position imaginable. So in describing the citizens of his kingdom, the kingdom that never passes away, he uses the term blessed nine times. Then having pronounced the citizens of his kingdom blessed or in the most favored position imaginable, he then gives us the description of what they are like. And then having described them, he tells us why being like this really is blessed. So let's come to our first beatitude. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, at the outset, this is surprising. The truly favored person, the person whose satisfaction knows no bounds so that they are in the most envied place is the person who has a kind of a poverty. Now, in the Old Testament, there were laws to protect the poor as well as commands for all God's people to care for them. For instance, there were laws that forbade farmers from harvesting their crops to the edges of their territory so that the poor might have something to eat. And if you read the book of Ruth, you're going to find that Ruth, who is portrayed as a poverty-stricken woman, walks behind the reapers in the field because the Old Testament law forbade farmers from going over their crops twice. So whatever the reapers had not had the foresight to pick up what was left over behind them was left for the poor. That is, the farmer couldn't go back and get them. The Old Testament provided for the poor in ways like that. But what all the poor had in common is that they were in need of charity. In other words, unless someone had compassion on the poor, the poor would die. Now stay with me with that thought, because when Jesus speaks about a poverty of spirit, he means exactly that. Unless someone has compassion on that person, they're going to die. I'll explain that when we come back. As we begin to unpack Jesus' words in the Beatitudes, it's important for us to rightly understand the term blessed. We say it so often, but what does it mean for someone to be blessed by God? Here we're learning that to follow Jesus is to enter on this path of joy and peace because of our right relationship with Him. But the key to joy is actually understanding that we're deeply depraved and poor. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld helps us discover the meaning of spiritual poverty. Over the next five weeks, we're going to continue to examine the Sermon on the Mount in this in-depth series with Dr. John Newfeld. I hope you'll stay with us for more great teaching about the Kingdom of Heaven and what it means to follow Christ in almost every area of life. In case you'd like to own this series for yourself, be sure to contact us to order your CD series of 25 unique messages of the greatest sermon ever preached for just $35 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca today. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. The poor in spirit are those people whose spiritual condition is so bad or so impoverished 
that unless someone has mercy on them, they'll die. Notice it is poverty of spirit, and the spirit is that part of our humanity which relates to God. And so the poor in spirit are those people whose spiritual condition is so bad that unless someone has compassion on them, they will suffer under the condemnation of God. Now, I know if you read your Bible, you find out that poverty of spirit is not limited to a few people. It is the universal condition of all the sons and daughters of Adam. We are sinful by nature and sinful by choice. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and have delighted in the creature rather than the creator. We are all poor of spirit. What Jesus is saying then is not that some of us really are rich in spirit. No, we're all poor in spirit. But Jesus is telling us that those who are citizens of his kingdom realize they're poor in spirit or have come to recognize just how spiritually bankrupt they really are. That's why Jesus would teach that prostitutes and tax collectors who committed treason against the Jewish people and other known notorious sinners would have an advantage in getting into the kingdom of heaven ahead of Pharisees and the other teachers of the law. And in Mark 2, verse 17, Jesus says that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he added, he did not come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. Again, the point is the same. Jesus was not saying that there really were righteous people who did not need him, but he was saying that there were those who viewed themselves as righteous, and he had not come for that kind of an individual. See, I'm reminded of Jesus' account, I mean the one found in Luke 18, where he tells of a Pharisee and a tax collector at prayer. The Pharisee thanked God that he was not a sinner, and the tax collector could not even lift up his eyes to heaven, and he beat his breast and let out a plaintive cry of, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's what Jesus is saying in the first of his Beatitudes. People who are overwhelmed by their spiritual poverty are in the most favored position imaginable. You know, the book of Revelation contains two amazing pictures, Jesus speaking to two very different churches. In Revelation 3.17, he says to the church in Laodicea, For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. See, isn't it fascinating how different that church saw themselves compared to how Jesus saw them? Now, now contrast that to Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna. In Revelation 2.9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And that's precisely the point at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Those who think they are rich are cursed and have no part in the kingdom to come. But everyone who is in the kingdom, who is blessed, in the most favored position imaginable, is profoundly aware of their deep and despicable and wretched spiritual poverty. And wow, does that not sound contemporary? See, I know of hymnals that that changed John Newton's words of amazing grace to take out who saved a wretch like me. And they've substituted that for the more politically correct words of who saved a one like me. See, spiritual poverty still strikes us as unacceptable today. And it's as hot a topic and as divisive a topic as it was in Jesus' day. See, those overwhelmed by their spiritual poverty are blessed in the most highly favored condition, for only that kind of a person has an inheritance in the kingdom, said Jesus. Theirs is the kingdom. Now, I wonder how this must have sounded to the people listening to Jesus. You know, one of the reasons Jesus often denounced the rich in material wealth is not that riches in and of themselves are bad, but rather with riches comes the temptation to believe that you do not need. 
And it is this lack of neediness, this this lack of an inner sense of poverty that makes the kingdom unacceptable to many. Of course, we're not saying that an awareness of spiritual poverty is enough. But we might put it this way. Awareness of spiritual poverty, while it is not a sufficient condition to get you into the kingdom, is most certainly a necessary condition. And that's what Jesus has been saying. He's not saying that being spiritually poor gets you into the kingdom, only that everyone in the kingdom is profoundly aware of how blind and wretched they are and how deeply and intensely they must rely on grace. Now to the second beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now we should notice how the the second beatitude follows logically. The mourning of which Jesus speaks can't simply be a description of all people who weep, because this world is filled with grief and sorrow and, and overwhelming sadness. You know, every day on planet Earth, millions of people die, and those who survive them raise their voices in weeping. You know, the daily suffering of this planet, if we allow ourselves to think about it, can seem altogether suffocating. Now, add to that sickness and financial loss, loss of reputation, marriages that end, the list of sorrows never ceases. Everyone mourns. Living in a sin-cursed creation necessitates that we will suffer. Both the righteous and the unrighteous will weep and mourn. Jesus was not referring to that. Consider 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Please notice that there we might weep not just because of loss, but we might even weep over our own mistakes, even over our own sins, the things we have done that we deeply regret. But weeping over sin can be of two different kinds. When Paul speaks about worldly grief, he seems to be speaking about a kind of grieving that is contrary to holiness. You see, for him, worldly means the opposite of godly. I think he means the kind of grieving that grieves over how our sin has made us appear in the eyes of the world or how our sin has negatively affected us. But it's also the kind of grieving that is without hope in the sacrificial death of Christ as the source of our forgiveness. Now, when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, he must be referring to the deep sense of inner grief over one's spiritual poverty. It's not just that we are aware that we are spiritually bankrupt. The response to what we have found in ourselves results in a deep experience of anguish. I'm personally overwhelmed by the unacceptable sin that I find in myself. See, sometimes the question is asked whether it's possible for someone to be converted if they do not feel genuine grief over their sin. I remember some years ago being invited to the home of a woman who had become a Christian by coming out of a cult. She invited me and a number of others to hear her testimony and also announced that she was going to share her testimony in formats uh, throughout churches and in wider media ministries. Now, I had some misgivings, but I went, and what I heard that day genuinely shocked me. See, in her story, she told of an abusive father, a domineering sister, and a number of others in her life who were either blatant sinners or filled with hypocrisy. And by the time her testimony was done, she was clearly the hero of her story. She had the foresight to make a stand for Jesus and even walk out of a cultic church that she had been raised in. 
See, I say I was shocked because she was an immigrant from another country, and she also announced that the kind of Christianity she found in Canada was lukewarm and filled with compromise. Well, maybe so, but she announced that she had been sent to awaken the church from its lethargy. See, I'll never forget her story because she later, listen to this, she later left her husband because he was too carnal for her. She apparently found and met someone who was more to her hyper-spiritual liking, and I don't know whatever became of her, but I've never forgotten her. You see, whenever we are the hero of our story, we have no part in Christ. Whenever we're the hero of our story, when we say no regrets, we will never see the need for a Savior, never the need for a cross, to be stained with the precious blood of the only begotten Son of God. So here's the description of those who have found enduring joy. They have, with the hymn writer, told God, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. What's the secret to being blessed and experiencing joy as human beings? In today's study, we've heard a radically different message from Jesus than what is considered conventional wisdom. For in the words of our Lord, true joy can only be found in understanding the depth of our spiritual poverty, and from that, leaning on the grace and love of our Savior. I hope that this powerful and life-changing lesson has impacted your journey of faith today, as we discover how Jesus describes the foundation for enduring joy. Tomorrow, we'll continue this series with Dr. Neufeld, the greatest sermon ever preached, with more teaching on the Beatitudes from Matthew 5. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In Psalm 25, David wrote, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. This verse really does capture the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, leading people into the truth of God's Word, but not only in Canada. This past month, Dr. Neufeld and a ministry team from Back to the Bible Canada were privileged to visit Back to the Bible India in Hyderabad. It really was a privilege to meet with ministry leadership, share the Word of God, and discover how we in Canada might partner to share in the great need of this ministry and to come alongside to create new opportunities that would impact India in a profound way. 1.3 billion people, a nation that represents incredible need and diversity, has a great thirst for the hope that can only be discovered in a transformational relationship with Jesus. Would you join Back to the Bible Canada to provide the Bible teaching resources of Dr. John Neufeld across India? To provide resources that expand the presence of reliable Bible teaching through a renewed daily presence on radio and a new mobile optimized website that will connect with all the smartphones across the country. These resources will not only be distributed widely in English, spoken by the majority of people in the urban centers, but in Telugu and Hindi, and a vision to offer even more languages as the opportunity and resources allow. We pray you share our passion for this incredible international opportunity for partnership with Back to the Bible India. Call us today for more information or to offer your gift. Or if you're currently a monthly partner, perhaps you'd consider increasing your gift, maybe just as much as $10 a month. 
It would do so much as we work towards our annual goal of $100,000 towards this important ministry. It would mean so much as we share in this great need to support Bible teaching in India. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.